0: I, 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 want to understand. I do, and I'm, I'm really gonna be fair from now on. You know that.
1: This isn't playtime. This is serious business.
0: But the play must go on. I I'm always home. I'm on good. I've been thinking a lot about dying lately. I'm trying to do good.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of That's That of Philip Seymour Hoffman Retrospective Podcast. My name is Timothy Mark Davis, and I'm your host. Today, we are talking about Red Dragon, the 2002 psychological horror directed by Brett Ratner, who we have things to say about soon. <laughs> Written by Ted Talley and starring Edward Norton, Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins, I should say, Ray Fiennes, Emily Watson, Mary Louise Parker, Harvey Keitel? How do you say his name, Joe?
2: Oh, you're asking the wrong guy. I was going to say Keitel, so.
1: Harvey Keitel? Dang it, I should know that. I was supposed to look at up. <laughs> I don't now. know. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> and the scumbag tabloid reporter, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I hope you took the time to watch the film on Netflix because it's an enjoyable film to watch. Uh, I think it's a good installment in the Hannibal Lecter lore, cinema lore that we have uh, with some great performances. And, of course, a solid four-scene fill. Performance. My guest today is friend and very, very, very serious film critic Joe Ruleman. How are you today, Joe?
2: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
1: I'm great, man. I'm I got my old fashion here, having a little drinky drink, Saturday afternoon. About to talk Hannibal Lecter with my pal Joe. So I'm doing great.
2: Nice. It doesn't get any better than that. At least not in the not in the world of quarantine. So
1: no, surely not. <clears throat> surely not. So today we're talking about Red Dragon, which stars, well, not really stars, features Philip Seymour Hoffman as Freddie Lowndes, a sleazy, douchey gossip columnist for the National Tattler uh, in his 28th feature film. Here's the log line from IMDb for the film. A retired FBI agent with psychological gifts is assigned to help track down the Tooth Fairy, a mysterious serial killer. Aiding him is imprisoned forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. And here's a logline from Netflix, where the film can currently be watched. Former FBI agent Will Graham confronts an old nemesis, Hannibal Lecter, when he's tasked to hunt down a grisly serial killer known as the Tooth Fairy. Joe, hot takes on these loglines. What do you think?
2: Um... See, I, you know, IMDb, I think, sounds a little bit more eloquent. The Netflix was very much a, a Netflix log line of uh, they, they're giving you the tabloid bit to put to just sucker you into watching it.
1: But yeah, it's like <laughs> the national Tatler headline version. That, it is
2: the Tatler headline. I agree. <laughs> it's very fitting.
1: I like how it's grisly serial killer known as the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. It's like, which it's a little juxtaposition there.
2: Yeah. Which it, you know, it is part of the. The issue in the in the movie, though, um, the actual Tooth Fairy does not like being referred to as a Tooth Fairy.
1: No, he does not. He doesn't like being referred to as a lot of things. He's a little sensitive.
2: Yeah, I, I I think that's part of what makes him a good villain in this. Though, is is his yeah. complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best villains are sort of complex like that, and y- you hate him, but the more y- you kind of pity the guy at the same time,
1: right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this movie sort of occurred at a really good time for like when we were hungry for being able to empathize with super twisted, messed up villains. And and I don't think anyone leaves this movie being like, oh, I wish... I wish Francis Dollarhide in The Tooth Fairy, like, you know, I wish that they would have forgiven him and he would have, like, that doesn't happen. Right. Uh, but I think people, like, much like Edward Norton's character, people feel the sort of like, I just feel sad. Like, this, this kid was just so abused and uh, no justification for what he did, but can kind no, of see why he did it.
2: Edward Norton, or uh, agent, uh, or retired agent Graham, I guess, yeah. uh, I mean, towards the end of the film, he makes that comment after looking through the journals, right? Of right. He was kind of created. Uh, this, yep. the serial killer
1: yeah, by any, by an evil grandma, what a, that's, ugh, that's, that's horror film for sure. Yeah. So as mentioned, red dragon was directed by Brett Ratner, whose other notable directing credits include, uh, the three rush hour movies, uh, X-Men, the last stand, a ton of music videos over the years. Uh, and he also has a lot of producing credits. Uh, I think we should also state that in November 2017, seven actors, uh, among them Olivia Munn, Natasha Henstridge, and Elliot Page, all accused Ratner of sexual assault and harassment, causing Warner Brothers to sever all ties with him. I'm pretty sure he had some other X-Men stuff coming up with them, Uh, but he's very much uh, on the outs with the industry, major uh, allegations, accusations against him. Um, he hasn't, I I was looking at his IMDb. He he produced something in 20, uh, in 2019, it was actually like an independent film that Christoph Waltz starred in and and directed. Uh, but besides that, he hasn't done anything really since 2017, uh, it's been totally under the radar. So I don't know legally what's going on with those allegations, but I just thought it was important that we (laughs) at least state that upfront, the guy who directed this movie. Not a good look, man. Not good.
2: No, and I and listen, I agree with you. It's something you you can't sweep stuff like that under the rug. It's eh. no. I I wish I had more eloquent words to say about it, but (laughs) I don't. It's just
1: right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is really the first. I mean, we've had some. We've had. I've Philip Seymour Hoffman has some great Charlie Rose interviews that he's done over the years. He's done a few. Um, and we've used a few of those on the, on the podcast. And I, th- I think I even made a joke about Charlie Rose on a, on another episode. Um, but I feel like this is kind of the first person who is in a major creative role for a film that, that Phil was involved in that is like a part of the me too movement. Uh, and I just feel like we gotta address that on the front end.
2: No, I, I agree with you. We'd be remiss if we didn't. Um, I don't have a ton to say about it because I don't think the world needs to hear another straight white guy's opinion on it. Um,
1: Wait, are you sure?
2: <laughs> so
1: Come on, I, there, man.
2: There are a ton of good uh, resources out there. And hopefully if uh, any of your listeners haven't engaged in some of those conversations, I know even you're the, the New City Players um, I'll plug your own uh, theater group for you, but uh, they've, oh. done, they, they've weighed in on those discussions in a lot of meaningful ways, I think, on your social media pages. And if you're not involved in those discussions or haven't listened to some of those dialogues, whether it's NCP or somewhere else, then you, you got to educate yourself because it's, it's an unfortunate uh, reality. But fortunately, we're becoming more aware, you
1: know? Yes, definitely. And, and stronger accountability is happening. And uh I think calling out culture and calling in culture and figuring out, okay, how do we, how do we handle terrible behavior in a way that is constructive and just and honors the victims? Um, and is just like smart about moving forward. So yeah, yeah I, couldn't and agree I, more. I think,
2: yeah, I think, um, one of my favorite, uh, music artists, Phoebe Bridgers was talking about a similar concept uh, in a recent interview and she was talking about, uh, you know, she likes a lot of the classic rock icons like Eric Clapton and some of those guys. And, you know, the more you learn about some of those guys... It's come to light recently that Clapton made some pretty racist comments uh, back in the Mm. day. And she was talking about how a lot of her uh, musical counterparts will say, like, you know, Clapton wasn't that good anyways. And she's kind of like, no, he wasn't. Like, Clapton was great. Like, it (laughs) sucks that he is that way. But, like, I still like some of his songs and how... I don't know b- because someone is not a good person doesn't necessarily erase the um, the beauty of some of their art, but it does make it complicated for us trying to right. appreciate it for sure.
1: Right, right. And I and I think I mean I could be wrong in this. I could I could honestly have a different view on this in a few years, but yeah, at least currently it feels like everyone kind of has to make their own decision, artist by artist, you know. Yeah. Uh, and if someone says, you know what, I'm just not going to engage with this person's art anymore because of uh, their behavior, I think that's totally justifiable and totally fine. Uh, And if someone is like, you know what, this is, this makes me uneasy and I don't like this, but um, this art has still moved me and spoken to me and helped me. So I'm going to continue to engage with it with the backdrop of uh, this kind of sucks, but...
2: Yeah, and I, I think it's a little t- more complicated in something like film. Like in music, you know, if yeah, one of your it's one music- person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, you know, you lo- if if you love Philip Seymour Hoffman or I, I honestly have always I've had a huge man crush on Edward Norton since I totally. was like a teenager. So, like, yep. it, it makes a little more complicated. Of you know, they have amazing performances in this movie, and it it doesn't dilute what they accomplished here.
1: But there's so much collaboration uh, sp- in the storytelling arts you know mm-hmm. so many people helped make this movie not just the not just the director but you know, i think yeah. we are walking that tightrope of acknowledging and um and calling out uh, but also honoring the work of the other people involved
0: more than anything i was afraid to ask
1: So back to Red Dragon a little bit. The film was written by Ted Talley, who also wrote, which doesn't sound like a real name, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) Ted Talley. It's just ridiculous. Uh, But he also wrote the screenplay for Silence of the Lambs and won an Academy Award for it, which is Mm -hmm. just a perfect movie. Amazing, amazing film. Uh, Red Dragon was adapted from the 1981 novel of the same name by Thomas Harris. Uh, It's the novel that introduced Hannibal Lecter to the world. Uh, with uh, the Silence of the Lambs novel not coming out until 1988. So all of this is sourced material from from novels, the different Hannibal Lecter and Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon World. Uh, the film has a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, if that matters to you, and an estimated budget size of $78 million. It started production on January 7th, 2002. It shot throughout Maryland and uh, Western California Marathon, Florida. They actually shot those Marathon, Florida scenes down in Marathon uh, along with a stint in Washington, D.C. Production lasted for 77 days, was released on the big screen in the U.S. on September 30th, 2002, which is a pretty quick turnaround to be in production, post-production and then releasing all in the same year. A few other notable, uh, notable pieces of trivia facts that I just wanted to throw in here really quick. Um, Sir Anthony Hopkins apparently asked the director if he could come on set on one of his days off to watch Philip Seymour Hoffman work. Uh, (laughs) I guess he was such a fan of him and wanted to come see him work. This was uh, in the IMDb trivia, but I also found it in in an article, in an interview as well. Uh, More Anthony Hopkins stuff. He said that one of his goals in playing Dr. Lecter for this final time, this was the last time that he would play Hannibal. Uh, was to reestablish that he is an evil serial killer because Hopkins believed Hannibal had come to be seen too much as a likable anti-hero by audiences. I think, I think there is that weird thing in sounds of the lambs where you're like, this guy is so cool. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Anthony Hopkins is like, um, listen, this guy is evil and insane. Lest you forget. Right. Which I loved. Um, Um, what's yeah, go ahead.
2: Uh, Dang, what's the guy's name like the most famous is it Roger Ebert?
1: Yes, Roger Ebert.
2: Yeah, yeah Roger Ebert talked and he, he I re, I was reading his review of the movie and he talked about that with Hannibal oh, really? about how yeah and and he you know he puts it more eloquently than I'll do it justice for, uh, with my own words yeah. but he talks about how people kind of forgive his sins because he's so um Hannibal himself is so eloquent yeah. and good-mannered and um,
1: smart and and
2: edu- yeah <laughs> But not Classy. just yeah, not just smart in terms of the psychological chess match, like his vocabulary yeah. and how articulate he is, and so he there there is something likable about him. And people, right. you know, he tells uh, in one of the the future films, he tells Clarice that he doesn't want to kill her because the world is more interesting with her in it. And I think the audience uh, kind of views him the same way at times of like. Mm. I, I don't know. I, I kind of like having him around. He makes the world a more interesting <laughs> place. <laughs>
1: and... right, as long as he's not eating me or people I know, like, I mean, cool, right?
2: He ate a few people. It was a long time ago. <laughs> we all Listen. go through a phase.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, I can't wait for my cannibal face. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Sir Anthony, here's another interesting little little piece of trivia. Anthony Hopkins, Edward Norton, Ray Fiennes, and Philip Seymour Hoffman all turned down original offers to appear in this movie. When Ted Talley, the fake screenwriter, came back on to write the script, that was the clincher that changed all of their minds. I huh. thought that was really interesting. It's like, you just realize that sometimes a piece of cinema, like Silence of the Lambs, when it, it just be becomes a pillar in the cinematic universe where it's like, I'm not going to do this sequel prequel BS unless the guy who made that thing is a part of it and, and yeah. signing off on it. And we thought that was interesting.
2: W- was he a part, was Ted Talley uh, a part of Hannibal, the actual Hannibal movie? He was not. Okay. C- did that come out before Red Dragon?
1: It did. Yeah. yeah a couple because years before, I think. Th-
2: I think that probably has to do with all of their, uh, Th- their tepid reactions to being invited to participate in the film because sure. i've never seen that one because
1: i just heard it sucked
2: <laughs> same and i mean jody foster read this sc- I, le- I believe Jodie foster read the script and was like this is terrible i'm not going to touch it <laughs> and so i think that's uh, also yeah i would imagine that played into sir anthony hopkins wanting to do this as well as kind of right. redeeming that universe i've only oh, seen true. bits and pieces of it and you know, I think part of what makes Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs both great is that it, there's a lot of psychological tension and there's not a mm-hmm. ton of action in either one. There's more mm-hmm. action in Silence of the Lambs, but it, there's not a ton of, you don't see the serial killer really at work. It's actually no. with, with, our, with our main man, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, that you yeah. see the Tooth Fairy do the yeah. most of his yeah. work. And, you know, in Hannibal, they kind of remove that mystery and you see a ton of, like, the gore
1: and it oh, just... a lot of violence. Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's not it's as
1: interesting. <clears throat> it's not the same genre anymore. So, like, why would... It's you know, not, People yeah. don't like it. <laughs> yep. That makes sense. Interesting. Well, spe- speaking of that uh, uh, Tooth Fairy doing his work, a pair- this is another piece of trivia. The death the death of Freddie Lowndes was filmed by setting a real stuntman wrapped in protective material on fire as the wheelchair rolled down the street. So no puppets, no animatronics. They literally set a stunt man on fire and pushed yeah. him down the street.
2: That's, you know, <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, when you see it, it's like, it looks, it looks it real. It looks real. The guy's yeah. Moving
1: his arms. Yeah. Yeah. And it's some of that, like Tom Cruise level insanity.
2: Yeah. I just, I read stuff like that and I know that I could never be a stunt man. I'll, i i could be the towel boy on set before i could yes. be the stunt man. but
1: yes i'll hold the fire extinguisher to yeah. put this thing out
2: there's no parallel universe where joe ruleman ends up as a what, cliff booth or anything like that
1: <laughs> No, for a lot of reasons joe well for a lot of reasons
2: mainly just i'm not you know i've got yeah, the looks yeah. right you've got the looks yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> brad pitt spitting image mm, mwah, beautiful <laughs> So my last piece of trivia, which I, which I'm going to go on a rant about is that Jack Black was considered for the role of Freddie Lowndes. I did some research on this yeah. uh, because Jack Black is having a bit of a, and I was posting about this on Instagram earlier today, actually, but Jack Black is having a bit of a, uh, people are refinding him and reappreciating yep. him. Have you seen this happening like the last couple months?
2: I've seen it happening and I've been personally a part of it. I think I'm, I'm a supporter. I think. I I think he's underrated.
1: I would agree. I think he's great. I watched Bernie earlier this year, the Richard Linklater film. Okay. Uh, which I'd never seen, which is like an okay film, but he is so good in it. And he sings so many songs in it. And he's got like a beautiful voice. I am a Jack black fan. Do not get me wrong. But I went and found this article and the title of it was like, Philip Seymour Hoffman has been haunting Jack black for years. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm just going to read this little part of it It says black insists. He is happy with his comedic roles, but feels it would be easier to land an acclaimed dramatic part. If he didn't face such stiff competition from the best actor, Oscar winner, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He explains he's tormented me over the years because we're like a similar body type, but he's always been a little bit better than me. (laughs) I never saw him at an audition. I would just see him in the movie. I wanted that part in Boogie Nights. I wanted that part in Happiness, but I'm a huge fan of his. So let me just state, I'm with the Jack Black, the the, the Jack Black-assance, whatever we want to call it. We're we're like refining our (laughs) appreciation for him. I'm on board. But don't you effing dare (laughs) compare Jack Black to Philip Seymour Hoffman. I saw a tweet that said, Jack Black could play any and all of Philip Seymour Hoffman's roles. That is the worst take I've heard in a century.
2: Yeah, I, I I don't I I don't even know what to say to that take. I love Jack Black and I have a ton of respect for him. I'm uh, I am a big supporter of the Jack Black Assange, whatever if that's what yeah. we're calling it. Um, sure, I, I think part of the I don't know the uh, what's the word, the ethos behind this Jack Black Assange is. Yeah, he's so heavily identified with like Nacho Libre and things like that that are just yeah. I mean you gotta love which is that offensive.
1: Film. Let's be honest. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, a whole separate discussion. Don't disagree, but um, um, it is
1: hilarious, though. It's yeah,
2: yeah. Or, or even we'll say School of Rock. Like I love that oh, movie in high school. Love that movie. I'll watch it with my own kids someday. But you don't the look holiday. at that
1: movie,
2: Yeah, on. you don't look at School of Rock and and think like this is an incredible piece of acting, though. Like he's he's <laughs> right. funny and he does things in it like kicking his legs up in the air and some of his mannerisms yes. that no one else does, like Jack Black. And he's funny yes, and he's
1: a great singer.
2: But you're not going to put him in like the acting Hall of Fame for that, the way. Yep. But and but he's had some great performances. I'll t- I just watched yep. a few weeks ago. Um, Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Uh, the Joaquin oh, yeah. Phoenix movie. Oh, Jack yeah, Black has yeah. Jack Black has a small supporting role in that, and he's great. And that that's yeah. part of my Jack Black assance is like this guy has some chops, and mm-hmm. he can play some very emotional. Um, he was great. And um, did you ever watch High Fidelity? With John no. Cusack that's a no. that's another great one you should put on your list it's uh okay. he has a, he does a great that's a very sort of classic Jack Black performance in terms of his quirkiness and mannerisms yeah. but he does a phenomenal job in it so I have a ton of respect for him but I I'm on board with you that the, the, the take that that he could replace <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman in any of his movies is like come on man
1: it's it's uh like, it's hilarious you,
2: like you think you could look me in the eyes and keep a straight face and say Charlie Wilson's War is the same movie, <laughs> and possibly enhanced if you put Jack Black in instead of like, come on.
1: Imagine Jack Black saying, <clears throat> saying, uh, "You think my dad I can't even <laughs> yeah. say because you and I have been joking about this for years, but it's like yeah. your favorite line. Go out, give it to us, Joe. Come on, oh, give it to wait. us." <laughs> wait, you Greek think it's soda pop maker? Post soda pop maker? You think it's because I'm an American spy? Yeah. Go fuck like, yourself, you fucking child. Come yeah,
2: th- that scene becomes hilarious if you put Jack Black in it. Like throwing yes. stuff and whipping his long hair around. Uh-huh. And I, like I just...
1: And it's a- only hilarious with Philip Seymour Hoffman doing it after you've watched it a, like 10 times. Then you're like, this is so funny and so good. But that initial time, it's kind of terrifying.
2: No, th- Whereas I Jack agree. Black
1: would be funny from the beginning.
2: It becomes funny the way like like a, a great guitar solo or something like that becomes funny of like, Oh my God, here it is. Like,
1: yes. Yes. yes you know, yep. but
2: yeah. Yep. So I, I, unfortunately I have to agree with you on this one.
1: Yeah. I even had someone, I had someone um, re- respond cause I was going off on on Instagram about it. And someone was like, I, I agree, but like, what do you think, you know, of the, of Hoffman's roles, what do you, th- which ones do you think that Jack Black could even, could even do. And I kind of thought like, let, let's, let's put aside the 90s small bit parts, you know, a lot of films that no one's a seen. Let's just talk like the 20, 30, 35 roles yeah. that Hoffman is known for. I think Jack Black could probably passively do half of them at best yeah. and not even do the other half. <laughs> That's sort of my, uh, yeah. my assessment of the issue. I just, you Which know, is not some- a real issue, by the way. Yeah, so many. I am so manufacturing many... <laughs> yeah. conflict in the universe right now. That's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> at least it's you know at least it's about something we can have an enjoyable discussion about, and it, there's there's nothing at stake. <laughs> literally nothing at stake. <laughs> know, here, which is my of...
1: literally my favorite thing to fight about when there's nothing at stake. It's like oh, I can get so mad, I can get so angry, I can get furious, and yeah. it's fine because there's no stakes.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, I you know I have so many uh, other. Uh, Philip rolls going through my head that I'm sure, you know, you're going to analyze or have already analyzed on the podcast, but yeah, it's, it's laughable to me that <laughs> to think that Jack Black could just, you can, you know, you can just cut and paste Jack Black. And, you know? right.
1: Right. And I should say that that tweet that I found zero likes zero retweets, <laughs> <laughs> it was tweeted back in October zero engagement.
2: Yeah. So. That's, I mean, that says it all.
1: Yeah, no one is really. thinking it's like that. maybe uh, I'll uh, start a new segment on this of I'm like, a, could Jack Black do this?
2: Yeah, it's uh, the
1: answer is always no. Uh,
2: yeah, no, the answer is I'm not even going to dignify that other response.
1: I thought <laughs> be you've been dignifying her in the ass room. Three. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to do Charlie Wilson's War. Great one. Okay. So now that we have talked about nonsense and trivia and the factoid dump and all that like stupid stuff that I like because I like nerding out on the films that Phil has done, let's get into <clears throat> Red Dragon itself. Joe, what are your overall thoughts, feelings, and impressions of Red Dragon? Uh, and a part of that, maybe compare it to, to Silence of the Lambs.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, Silence of the Lambs has such a, I mean, you touched earlier on how it's just like a seminal film. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, Hello, Clarice is sort of like, here's Johnny. Like yes. people that that aren't that culturally literate know like that's from Silence of the Lambs. I've never seen Silence of the Lambs, but I know Hannibal Lecter says that to somebody. Yep. And so it's really hard to watch this movie and not just view it through the lens of Silence of the Lambs. Very and true, the format is very similar to, you know, he's going to visit Hannibal and the Jail and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Edward Norton, I sort of lean more in the direction of Red Dragon, but I think that's just sort of personal bias. The, the, um, oh, like
1: you like it more?
2: I think so, but I think it's just wow. because I like the two of them so much that yeah. Yeah. I just enjoy their performance. I think it's a pretty standard Edward Norton performance, and I just love his style so much.
1: Yeah, I do too.
2: But I think if if I'm being objective, if that's possible, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think Silence of the Lambs deserves its place in cinematic history. And to yeah. me, um Red Dragon is a solid, above average sort of serial killer thriller that mm-hmm. is sort of carried by performances of Edward um Philip Seymour Hoffman and of, of course Anthony Hopkins. But...
1: Yeah. And and I would say even like <coughs> Emily Watson and and Ray Fiennes yeah. too. I mean, Ray Fiennes is like, I'll I'll play the clip later. But when he's like showing, uh, Freddie Lowndes his back, and he makes this mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm like, oh my god, it's Voldemort. <laughs> like there's some <laughs> yeah. weird like Voldemort and this guy are kind of in us. They're they're connected somehow. Yeah. Just in their like dementedness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the film is just full of really solid performances. And Edward Norton is, is an interesting, he's an interesting guy because it's like, he's, it's like, he's a leading man, but he's also not a leading man. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. And he feels that way in fight club too. And he, there's so he's, many movies he's he, been in.
2: He's a little more subdued in this than he is in fight club though. And yeah, I think that's, that's what true. I like about his performance here. He he it's does more grounded. Yeah, and he captures the um, the emotion and psychology of his character have, like being retired, yeah. and he, he really comes across as kind of resenting this part of himself that is able to identify with these serial killers, but yeah. at the same time embracing the fact that he's able to save people through it.
1: Yeah, that was a part where I'm like, oh, that that is never really stated or spoken about. I mean, I guess Hannibal kind of prods him <clears throat> on it. But a lot of it is just like him, when he is looking at the case files, when he is thinking about these serial killers, you can sense the like, am I going to go there? I have to go there to solve the case. I don't want to go there. Why am I connected to these people? Like just, just his face and his behavior communicates all of that to me. And I'm like, God, how does he, it's just so good.
2: Yeah. And that the guy who kind of manages the jail, I forget his name, but who's sort of that fanboy yeah children he asks him you know he's just sort of cringy right and he's like oh "Oh, how did you catch him and Edward Norton says I let him kill me and yes I'm not sure exactly you know I I thought a lot about what that means and I'm not 100% sure (laughs) and maybe I'm reading too much into it but I think that sort of touches on that complexity for Edward Norton of like I lost you know in chasing Hannibal I discovered this piece of me that uh, I have that it, I have in common with serial killers. And so it, right. a part of me is dead forever because of this. Right. I, I, right. I let him kill me, you know?
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think it, it's also like, you don't, you don't catch a serial killer as smart as Hannibal Lecter. You kind of end up in his lair and you either win or lose. And yeah. More often than not for Hannibal, you, are in the lair unknowingly and then you're yeah. dead and you never knew he was the bad guy. Right. And Edward Norton had 10 seconds, five seconds where he found things out and then the clues emerged and he had like the split second instinct to grab the arrows or whatever in the, in the beginning of the film. So it was, it's even like he, he didn't really catch him. He kind of just like put the clues together with five seconds to spare and it, you know, saved his life.
2: Yep. And, um, I mean, you're asking my overall thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. I I think, listen, the the format of the movie, if we're being, you know, transparent is really not special. Um, it's the same Mm -hmm. setup as silence of the lambs and just the, um, the structure of pursuing him. And then at the very end, it's like, it's all over. Wait, no, it's not. He shows up in the main character's house. Like we've seen that before. I, you know, I, I just watched Along Came a Spider a couple months ago. It's pretty much the Along exact- Along Came Polly? Well,
1: <laughs> no. Same thing.
2: It's so pretty much the same thing. If you're familiar with Along Came a Spider, it's Morgan Freeman, uh, serial killer mystery. Oh, um, nice. So, and it's a very, the, the ending is very similar, but I think sort what you double get-
1: Double reversal, yeah.
2: Yeah, and um, what you get in Red Dragon that's that's different is- I think the complexity of some of these characters and the performances um, of the actors we've been talking about. You
1: know, what's interesting is I, that was one thing where like when I watched it last night and my mind exploded because I forgot about the end. Yeah. (laughs) Like I thought in the burning house, like, oh, he killed himself. And yeah. And that's, oh yeah, I guess that is how the movie ends. And then, and then it's like, and now this scene back in Marathon is like the denouement and we're gonna sort of tie wrap things up, and you know, happy with the family. Yeah. And then when the kid went back, you know, to get marshmallows, all of a sudden my brain was like, oh my, wait, oh my god, what? And I yeah. like my brain started malfunctioning because I suddenly remembered, yeah, how the movie ends. But it, you know, I, I kind of practice. I feel like this is a bit of a tangent, but. I've been brewing on this idea for the last few weeks. So I, I have a movie podcast, so I guess this is the time to share, right? Yep. Um, uh, I feel like one of the, one of the gifts in the last few years of sort of moving out of, uh, first half of your twenties and, and college years, like chip on your shoulder. I don't like bad stuff or, oh, that, that movie sucks, or, oh, that musician sucks, or you like that, oh, my God, you're so lame. Um, that combined with, and I don't mean to patronize you or the audience, Joe, but <laughs> that combined with, like, becoming a father and just the things that that mm-hmm. does to you and how it kind of softens you and <clears throat> messes with your brain and just doesn't allow you to be as much of a douchebag as you were in college. right. Uh, Like the great gift of the last few years of my life has been, I am just like open to art. I'm open to movies, like whatever's going to happen, whatever they're going to do to me. Uh, If it's like a cheesy, like a cheesy Netflix Hallmark movie that my daughter is watching and it like makes me tear up because I'm a complete sap or if I'm watching a, a Lexus commercial and it like makes me cry, you know what? That's okay. I'm just like trying to have an open heart, trying to have an open mind. I would much rather be like that and then be able to to like reflect on it and be like, okay, why did that move me? Because it's not, it's not very interesting. It's not asking any meaningful questions, but clearly there's something in me that is looking for resolution, that is looking for warmth and looking for comfort. And that's why these sappy things are affecting me. You know, similarly, just like being open to, a a thriller or a horror or something and not trying to figure it out not trying to crack it not trying to be a step ahead of the of the filmmakers you know obviously your brain is naturally doing this like oh what's going to happen like oh i don't yeah. know what's going to happen but i feel like a lot of time in my early 20s was spent like trying to guess the plots and trying yeah. to like be smarter than the filmmakers um and I, and i almost feel like ma- maturing as an artist and as just a person is sort of laying down that egotistical, cynical, asshole, douchey college <laughs> side of yourself Yeah. and being like, you know, and let me just be open to the world and open to whatever and like experience things for what they are and then reflect on, on their quality or on, you know, my belief in their quality afterwards.
2: Yeah. It's sort of a, almost a, a mindfulness practice it, and saying, mm. you know, as, as a teenager or even in your 20s or whatever, and honestly, even a lot of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, it's sort of um, like you get this street cred of like leaning over to the people you're with and you're like, that guy's the real killer. And then you call the twist and it's like, I told everybody right. that. And it's like, why, but why <laughs> is that really? I mean, we, we never have a discussion about why you deserve props for that or kudos for that. And like, there's real, like, it really is much more enjoyable when you engross yourself in the movie, stop trying to figure out what's going to like, let it surprise you.
1: And because or not, because sometimes you do that and they suck.
2: Yeah. Right. But you know, some of the best movies out there are, you know, based on true stories and Mm -hmm. you know how it's going to end. Right. Or some movies just from the beginning you're like, you know, this is a love story, of course they're, they're going to end get up together. together. Yeah, yep. but that doesn't make the storytelling or the cinematography or any of those other aspects. It doesn't dilute them in their, you know, their quality. So right. It's right. it's a good place to be.
1: Yeah, I I hope so. And I and I I feel like there's a danger in there's a danger in leaning like so far. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just like of shit, but it it feels like, (laughs) like, I don't want to make Netflix Hallmark movies, you know, like to me, they're still like not good movies. Like they provide a service, they reach a target audience. I guess they do what they intended to do. So it's like, I'm totally fine with their existence. Um, wow. like good Anya and people who like want that kind of warmth and simplicity. I think yeah. that's great, but like, I don't want to, that's not my I taste. Don't think it's I don't want to make that. But... <laughs> <I don't laughs> <think> it, a... <laughs> no, it's not great. It's not, it's not great. Um, but I, but I see why it exists. Uh, so it's like not, I don't want to lean too far that way where it's like, well, let me just make, make stuff that's simple because it works. It's like, that just kind of makes me feel sick to my stomach, but I don't want to go the other way too, of like, I'm just going to be a cynical asshole who critiques everything. And, you know, so many people are, are very busy hating on other stuff rather than creating the thing they wish existed. Um, and I'm trying to push against that in myself.
2: Yeah, I think, um, it's, uh, it's funny, uh, as, as you know, I have a brother who's a musician and he hates, um, Like American Idol and The Masked Singer and shows (laughs) like that because he hates any time art is turned into a competition and people are trying to quantify it. And there's like a Mm. winner and a loser in art. Sure. And um, I, I – I'm on board with that. And I, I mean, nobody fully wants to embrace that because then if you're fully going to embrace that, there's no quantifying of it, then you have to admit that like, well, then, then you can never tell me that Philip Seymour Hoffman is the best actor of all time. And I know you're never going to embrace that, no. But, but, no way. <laughs> no, but there's still something to be said about not quantifying everything and saying yes. like who's best and what's better. And, yes. um, and just sort of taking it in.
1: Yeah, and part of it is a bit, right? It's like yes, Philip Seymour Hoffman is my favorite actor, uh, and yes, I I go to absurd lengths to like appreciate him and talk about him and blah blah blah. But part of it is just like a bit to like make people have something to poke fun at me about, you know, yeah. or to like oh, well that's my go-to. It's like it's like part of my shtick, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, does it really matter? No. Again, it's like there's no stakes. Uh, well, that's not I f- right. I feel like there are stakes, but <laughs> But I know deep down somewhere that there's not, but I will, you know, on my deathbed, I'll, I'll promise you that there are stakes to trying to tell me that Jack Black (laughs) is better than Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've spent, I don't know, 40 minutes talking about this movie and Jack Black and a bunch of other random shit, let's talk about the Freddie Lowndes Hoffman performance. Yeah. Why don't we start that (laughs) with this scene?
0: You want to know what I am? More than anything, I was afraid to ask. Do you see now? Yeah, I see. You. Oh God, Mrs. Jacoby in human form. Do you see? Yes. Mrs. Leeds in human form. Do you see? Yes. Mrs. Jacoby changing. Oh my god. Mrs. Leeds changing. Do you see? Mrs. Jacoby reborn. Do you see? Mrs. Leeds reborn. Do you see? Please, no. No. No what? Not me. Not not me. Why did you write lies, Mr. Lounge? Graham told me to lie, Graham. It wasn't me. Will you tell the truth now? Yes. About me? My work? Oh, yes, yes. My becoming? Yeah, y'all. Yeah. I am the dragon, and you call me insane. You are privy to a great becoming, and you recognize nothing. You are an ant in the afterbirth. It is in your nature to do one thing correctly. Before me, you rightly tremble. But fear is not what you owe me, Mr. Lowndes. You owe me all. Read. That's all, Mr. Lounge. You did very well. You let me go now? Soon. There is one more way I can help you to better understand. I, I, I want to understand. I do, and I'm, I'm really going to be fair from now on. You know that.
1: Hello. And then he gets his tongue ripped out and set on fire and pushed down the street. Ouch. So many things to unpack here. Let me just yeah. get the Ray Fine stuff out of the way first. Yep. Uh, the yeah at the beginning and the <laughs> you owe me all. That is the Voldemort part that I'm talking about. There are clear connections to the Voldemort performance in what Ray Fines is doing here. Joe, what stood out to you? with Philip Seymour Hoffman in this, in this, in this scene, but also just his role in this film.
2: Yeah, I think, and I hate to sound like trite about it, but I don't know how else to put it. What always (laughs) strikes me with Philip Seymour Hoffman is the authenticity. Mm. And I just, uh, I don't know how how else to say it, except I believe his performances. And yeah, I mean the, the way he does sort of the one eighty of, he's just this total scummy reporter for the tabler, which is like, the pinnacle of names for a tabloid. <laughs> yes, but amazing. Um, he's a total scumbag. You pulled a, it's like you pulled him out of a box labeled "scummy journalist," and then yep. um, he has the scene right before that with Edward Norton and his bo- and his, I guess, boss or the, the guy who's kind of contracted him. And mm-hmm. he's so pompous, and he's just like calling all the shots, right? Of like, well, you know, yep. if you catch him, I get an exclusive. Yeah, and <laughs> he's not afraid of anybody. And then you see in this scene just the sheer terror and you can feel him yep. desperately trying to figure out like what button he needs to push to try to get out of this yep. situation. Right. Of like, okay, I'll write a good article about you. Is that what you want? I've seen. Yeah, it, was, I under- it was
1: Graham's <laughs> fault.
2: <laughs> it was Graham. I understand. I want to see. And yep. he's, I was, def-
1: too, I was too afraid to ask.
2: <laughs> yeah. And Such it, a it, good line. Yeah. Yeah. I was was too afraid to ask. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's doing a great job, you know, it's, but, um, and it kind of sets up, um, Graham's psychological chess, you know, towards the end of the movie and how he's able to figure out the right button to temporarily disarm, uh, Yep.
1: Yep. I'm going to cut it off. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. 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 That's Yeah. That's a great, that's a great scene at the end there. Um, that, that was the exact thing. The exact thing that stood out to me was like, somehow we have like sleazy douche vibe, um, which he's just great at, you know, he doesn't overplay it. He he always knows how to properly calibrate when he's playing these side characters. It's like, sometimes they are so over the top and they fit the film and sometimes they're really understated and they fit the film. Like he just always knew how to properly calibrate his supporting characters are like these four, three, four, five scene roles, uh, which are, you know, a little bit more of like a featured role, not so much a supporting Uh, somehow he, he does that like understated sleazy douche vibe. He's like, he's just in it. He's in it for the great headline. He's in it. He's in it to break the story first to this guy is totally terrified, but it still seems like the same guy. Like, it seems like that guy, is now in a compromised situation and is fighting for his life and is completely terrified. Not like now Philip Seymour Hoffman has to do the, has to do the scene where he's terrified. And like the character kind of goes out the window because it's just the serial killer terrified. There's only one way to play that. And it's like fighting for your life. It's like, no, he digs down deep and finds the nuance. And (laughs) like even that line (laughs) where he's like, do you see? And he goes, yeah, I see. Oh God. It's like, that was comedic. That's like a, it's like comedic delivery kind of snuck in there as like a little uh-huh. nugget for us. Uh, I don't know how he turns the performance that way, but like he, oh, God, it's and I, so I agree
2: with what you're saying. Like with, with a lot of other actors in those small four or five scene roles, you know, it's, it's almost two different characters. It's like, now he's pompous yeah. and, Oh, now you know he's broken down and he's scared. Point just driven. like but, playing the
1: emotion, they're supposed to be playing.
2: Yeah, rather it,
1: than like getting at the character.
2: It it certainly the way he's acting certainly feels like the way that Lowndes would act in that environment. Of yes, I mean no one's gonna be, try to be the alpha when your skin no. is glued to the wheelchair and all that. But he's very much trying to assert himself in whatever way he can, and mm-hmm. it comes across as very just his delivery
1: and well, it's still it's, sleazy, right? It's like his tactics are like, oh, oh yeah, you're amazing. Like whatever you say, I'll yeah. go along with what, like I'll, I'll be good. I'll like, even in the beginning when he doesn't want to look, you know, that's, I feel like that's his last ditch effort at trying to like, that's the the one tactic is if I just never see him, then I can't be compromised. Yeah. Uh, and that's before the scene we listen to but once he sees him, it becomes about like, I'll be on your team. I'll, which is like, yeah, that's exactly what this journalist guy would do. And part part of that is the writing, but I think it's what you said. It's like the the believability, the authenticity of the performance, and it it being interesting and not just being like a guy who's going to poop his pants, right? But like, there's layers to it. There's like a tiny bit of comedy. Um, there's fear. There's terror. There's shock. There's disgust. Like he's just all over the place. It's really yeah. interesting.
2: Well, I think that character, everything is very transactional for him, yes, right? Totally. Like. And, and that's how the sleazy journalist works. Like I scr- I mean, he says it earlier. I scratch your back, you scratch yep. mine. And, and, so, yep,
1: that's true. and so
2: he applies that same um, framework to the Tooth Fairy or the Red Dragon, as he would rather be called. And like, <laughs> right. listen, I'll write a puff piece on you. And I mean, I don't even think he believes that when he says it. He knows he's not. G- <laughs> the, second, oh. the second he's oh. out of there, he's going to buy a shotgun and... <laughs> And, and Call
1: the door. FBI and, and yeah. like, go hide somewhere. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And most likely he's gonna write an even worse piece. Of, well I mean, who knows who knows what he what he would do if he got oh, out he's of gonna, there. He
1: would glamorize himself as some sort of hero who escaped yeah. the clutches of the tooth fairy.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's part of but the tooth the tooth fairy is obviously insane, but he's smart enough to know that there's no way I'm gonna get exactly. any, any benefit out of helping this guy or interacting with this guy. And uh, the second
1: lounge releases that article, he's dead. The second, the tooth fairy reads it, like whatever psychological shenanigans that are going to happen with him, tormenting him and him showing someone his process and him sort of like, uh, it's interesting. It's almost like the, the, the tooth fairy wants to, he wants to justify himself. It's like, you called me all of these things. I've now prepared a slideshow presentation. Here's my keynote on yes, why you are wrong.
2: He's, hey, he's professional. <laughs> right? He is.
1: Here's my keynote very, very on why you're corporate. wrong.
2: Yeah. Yes. I've got a present And now I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he gives the thesis at the beginning. Yeah. Of, you know, Here's the agenda. Yeah. All right, now here's the, you know, here's Compelling my Compelling
1: images, some great anecdotes. Yeah, I've got some uh, charts
2: and some graphics to show you.
1: <laughs> some here's of them happen crack. to be
2: scarred into my skin, but it's a chart <laughs> <Yeah>. nonetheless.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like he, and that's where it's like the, the, that sort of really fragile, completely obliterated childlike ego of Francis Dollarhide mm. or, or the Tooth Fairy is, is exposed. Like, yes, he's trying to alpha himself in the situation right. with Freddie Lowndes, but it's because God forbid someone say something negative about me. Like that's what she did to me all the time. And I've been spent, I've spent my entire life proving her wrong. Uh, I'm not going to have this done on the national stage. Therefore I will glue you to a wheelchair. I will prove that you are wrong. And then I will set you on fire. The end. Yeah.
2: And yeah. And I mean, I don't know if there is anything Lowndes could have done to get out of that situation. No,
1: I don't I, think so. I, I, I
2: think at that point, he's committed a mortal sin against the Red Dragon. Yep. and
1: uh, <laughs> Now he must but, pay his penance.
2: <laughs> yeah. But he certainly wasn't going to get out of it by being transactional the way he was of like, no. how can I scratch your back?
1: Yep. That's and all he knows though. You know, that,
2: no, it is all he knows. And I mean, Edward Norton, granted Edward Norton wasn't glued to a wheelchair. So I, I get it at the end of the movie, but like right. the power dynamics were different, but yep. on the same, you know, at the same time, he still understood. It wasn't like, Hey, if you let my son go, like I'll get you, I'll get you a payout or like, I'll tell everybody right. how bad you are. It was I'll like, I'll let you
1: go. I promise.
2: Yeah. It <laughs> was like, come on. It was like, I, you, you have to find his weak point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. And it just it sort of more reveals like the, the weakness of this Freddie Lowndes character. And again, this is just like Hoffman is able to shine in these weak characters, um, weak, weak characters who think they're strong, strong characters who are actually strong, you know, like he, he's just so able to chameleon in all those different levels and Lowndes being a weak character, you know, someone of no integrity, no character, uh, really not much journalistic or inquisitive skills, uh, but thinks he is strong. Like he just nails that dynamic with this performance. And, and I think part of it is I, I found an interview. There's an interview where he's talking about punch drunk love uh-huh. uh, and his role in that um, as, as Dean Trumbull, which came out this, the same year, actually Phil had like four movies come out in 2002, 25th hour, which was with Edward Norton, Spike Lee film, Love Liza, which was our last episode, Red Dragon and Punch Drunk Love all came out in like the same year, which are are all amazing supporting uh, Hoffman performances. But this was at a Punch Drunk Love panel. Someone asked him like how he gets into these supporting roles. And this is what he said.
0: You know, you, you kind of look at your job in the story, you know, and uh, the, my job in this story is I always I mean, Paul didn't say this to me, but I always see it as that I'm the nightmare and the dream you know I'm his worst fear and uh, and he needs to overcome me before he's ever gonna able to be with Emily and um, and so I understood that you know I understood what that kind of nightmare fear is about you know making that call and all of a sudden ruining your life and there's the guy behind that call you know that you didn't expect to be there and so that's really what I look at I go what's my job in the story that was my cog in the wheel you know and um so i just wanted to foot that bill i wanted to make sure that i was a a character worth uh fearing and uh a character that was big enough that it was going to take him a lot he'd have to go through a lot in order to overcome me you know and um and that's really how i look at all those types of parts i try to see where's my um if i don't do my job how will the how will the film be less less successful you know and so because those are what kind of small character roles are about. You know, they're really, they're about that. They, If you need that ingredient for the other main story in order to, the other main story to be as potent as it can be, you know. And um, so that kind of tells me what I need to do most of the time. Yeah.
1: So I love that part where he says, if I don't do my job, you know, how will the film be less successful? And that's how he approached these, these supporting these smaller featured character roles is... I am a cog in this machine. I'm a piece in this puzzle. I've got to properly calibrate what I am doing to tell the entire story. And for, I just like his brain, his brain's ability to do that because like, at least from the actor perspective, we're always told in actor training early on. It's like, no matter the size of your part, like there's no small parts, only small actors, like you're taught. Imagine (laughs) you are, yeah, exactly. Imagine you are the lead in this in this play, in this movie, even if you only have five lines, like in your own life as the character, you are the lead. So like, what are you doing? And I feel like that sort of can mess actors up because then they're not thinking about how they fit into the story. Yeah. But if you're thinking about how you fit into the story too much... You kind of lose sight of what you, the character, are there to do. Sure. So, somehow Hoffman could blend these contradictory ideas and and really like create a, a layered, interesting individual. Yeah. But be super aware of how they fit and into the broader story and helped move it forward.
2: Yeah, it's it's funny to hear him or interesting, I guess, to hear him frame it up like that. It, is I, I have a one of my business school professors was a management consultant. And mm. he talked about um, when he would come into – he did some work with a few, like, Fortune 500 companies. He talked about how the question he would ask when he, – he's trying to help companies clean up and figure out who does what and, you know, create yeah. processes and things like that. And so he would ask, like, what does your team do? Um, so, like, basically, if nobody from your team showed up to work tomorrow, like, what wouldn't happen? What would stop functioning? Yeah. And that kind of sounds like what – um Philip Seymour Hoffman, how he approaches the roles in a way of, you know, if if this character is either gone or just not executed properly, what happens to this universe? And yeah, I think that gives him kind of a sense of purpose for each character.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really great point. And I think like, just you saying that, like, as an actor, it gives me like another way in, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, remove this character from the story what will break down in the story and whatever that thing will break down is okay. Now I need to identify that as an actor. I need to turn that into an action. I need to turn that into something that I can do and then turn that into behavior and turn that into characteristics. How's this person going to sound? How, how are they going to talk? How are they going to walk? And it's like finding that, you know, I now see in the puzzle, that is what the empty piece looks like. Now I need to kind of chisel this piece of the puzzle so that it fits because it creates the whole,
2: yeah. You might remove that character and say, what they bring to this universe is vitriol. And so that will,
1: (laughs) that will inform,
2: or it could be the total opposite, but that will inform your sort of chemistry, I think with your castmates and just some of the subtle dynamics that really separate a good from a great performance. I think it helps kind of inform some of those things.
1: Yeah. And I think Freddie Lowndes or at least Hoffman's take on it, there's like this, the world, the the world at large, you know, large percentages just, just are never going to understand or be interested in something this dark and evil and complex. They are going to spend their entire life trying to avoid this type of pain and suffering. And Freddie Lowndes represents this voyeur who just wants to come in and like snag the headlines from it and use it as entertainment Mm -hmm. when in reality there are deep, dark, broken pieces uh, inside of it. And so it's like, okay, then who, who is that character? If, if we lose the outsider's perspective, the, the shallow outsider's perspective, what do we lose in this story? Um, I mean, I think that's, that's the thing we lose. You know, we lose the fact that like people are not going to look at this as something serious or they're going to try to ignore it.
2: Yeah. And when you have a character like the tooth fairy, who's obsessed with others perception of him. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's understandable why he didn't get along very well with (laughs) lounge.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's another, that's, that's very perceptive. That's super true. It's like this guy's, this guy's whole job is to, is to write takedown pieces on people and shit all over them. And so it's like, Connecting that to the Tooth Fairy, it's sort of Tooth Fairy's greatest fear is that ridicule continuing for him, Uh, and so that that character becomes a mechanism for us to see the wrath of the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, if you're gonna act like my grandma, here's what's gonna happen to you. You know, we get to see that play out in Freddy Lounds.
2: Yeah, and so and and that brings me to another point that I don't know if this is a reach or not, but it just sort of brings me to an irony that um, the Tooth Fairy himself is um, furnishing these images of people that are very unflattering and that they do not appreciate, but that support yeah. his his sort of becoming you know of the red dragon yep. and um yep. it, so th- there's a strange commonality between the two that they don't seem to care very much about how their uh victims as you might put it are are perceived it's just about oh, how yeah. their victims serve sort of their own purposes, you know. I mean yeah. Edward Norton talked about how Lowndes snuck into or Graham, I should say uh Graham talked about how Lowndes snuck into his hospital bed when he was
1: recovering yeah, got that and, picture
2: and took pictures, right, and he published pictures of him unconscious that he did like not tubes
1: imp- <laughs> coming out of him yeah,
2: like but they served you know his becoming of a better journalist and wow. it's, you know they, they both they both had a thing for taking on... Unf- uh, images of people that were unflattering that serve their greater purposes. Right.
1: Wow. That's, yeah, that's a super interesting connection. And in some ways it's like, if we connect that back to this idea that I was trying to formulate, I'm not sure that I succeeded, but like if Lounge also kind of represents the cold distant viewer, uh, which is kind of us, you know, Lounds is representing the people in this story. He's an outsider. He's not FBI. He's not a serial killer. He's representing us. He's a journalist. He's he's representing the people. It's sort of that linkage of okay, Lowndes has these connections and overlaps with Red Dragon, this these sort of psychological things that are broken. Uh Uh, In the same way, how are we doing? You know, how are we supporting the smearing and and just like bad journalism? Yeah. And take down campaigns and sure. just b s all the time. Like we are doing that too. We do that individually amongst friends group friend groups. We do that in in what we support or in what you know how we spend our money or what news we read or what things we share or retweet or whatever. So it's I think it is sort of drawing this line back to, you know, there's a Francis Dollar hide inside all of us, <laughs> lest you forget. Well. Look beneath the floorboards, right?
2: I I don't know if this is more cynical or more optimistic, but I think maybe I would say there's there's a lounge inside all of us too. Yes,
1: yes.
2: (laughs) One of the I mean one of his few scenes when he's talking to Edward Norton, you can see him sort of it's like he's running a sharp edge against the story to see where it snags and catches and finds like those nuggets everyone's interested in. So if if you picture the tooth fairy being real and occurring current day, like the things that would pop up on Twitter. That you would the little snippets you would send to your friends. Hey, they've got the guy that caught Hannibal's coming out of retirement for this guy. Oh, he's working with Hannibal on this. Those are the things that Lounge really focuses yep. on, you know, because those are the juicy nuggets yep. that people are interested in. I mean, those are the things that would intrigue me, and there's there's nothing necessarily totally. inherently wrong with that, but it, it just shows how right. thirsty we are for those, you know, the, the juicy gossip.
1: Yep. Yep. The but go- Well, that's because like the gossip gives us that like chemical hit in the brain it's not complex but it gives us a rush because now we know something and it's funny or interesting or scary or whatever yeah Uh, but it doesn't require us to understand the context understand the nuance under because that's a bunch of work that's mental energy it's exhaust it's exhausting to be like proficient on an issue or a top or an event or whatever it is so it's, it's just like much easier for this brain cotton candy just like yeah throw the throw the tattler freddie Lowndes nugget at my face so i can <clears throat> joke about it with my friends for three minutes uh, this is shit you and me and our friends do all day yeah yeah <laughs> you no. Know? Well,
2: but those are the things people because who really yeah. wants to empathize with the tooth fairy the way uh, graham does at the end of the movie and say he was abused yeah and i mean listen it's an age. it's a debate as old as society itself like are, are they does he do it because he's crazy or is he, you know, sort of pushed into this mindset Right. and I mean,
1: nature, nurture. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It it reminds me of after, you know, the Boston bombing, you had the, um, the younger Sarnayev brother who's still alive was on the cover of Rolling Stone. And I was very controversial because some people felt like this is a rock star magazine and you just made him a rock star. Mm. And then the counterpoint to that was, well, you're just angry and offended that they made him, an empathetic person because this is, this is an image of him and he was an innocent teen at some, a teen at some point who was corrupted. Right. And so it, right. you know, it's, it's just it, people aren't as interested in that. They're more interested in right. learning about the older brother and how he was, yeah. you know, there's well, a that's lo-
1: moral <laughs> complexity. Yeah. And moral complexity always forces us to look inward. Yeah. And we find things that we don't like and we would rather ignore that stuff.
2: Exactly. And because even if you're getting beyond the whole sort of, oh, maybe there's a piece of them and all of us, I mean, maybe there's not, but being empathetic forces you to say, to act differently, you know, nine times out of 10, if you increase your empathy, you're going to say, there's things I should be doing differently, whether it's how you spend your time or money, or just how you treat people on a macro Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, minor level. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's empathy is always going to challenge you and so that's yep. the last thing that someone like Lowndes wants is to inject empathy into his pieces because he's not looking to challenge mm. people he's looking for the what well, you just mentioned that endorphin rush uh, yep. he's he's writing to the average person who has a short attention span and wants those juicy nuggets
1: beautiful couldn't agree more Joe, my last question for you before we wrap up, you are not involved directly with creating movies or theater, like some of the other guests we've had on the podcast, although yeah. you are a donor to new city players. So you do That's support right. the creation of art. <laughs> yes. But what, what draws you to an actor, uh, or a story, um, and, and why, you know, you've talked about your love for Philip Seymour Hoffman, which we wouldn't be friends if you didn't love him. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> What is it about him that makes him a great actor? What draws you to an actor as someone who's kind of more on the outside, appreciates great film and great story and great acting, but you haven't committed your life to this. What is drawing you in?
2: Yeah. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard to articulate again without being trite or sounding sort of um, generic, but I think there is a certain level of authenticity and believability to his performances. And I, I think you know, one of the ways that I've come to identify great actors or performances is, like, look at that character when they're not talking. So you mm-hmm. have to watch something more than once sometimes. And, like, if yeah. you look at Philip Seymour Hoffman, when he's not talking, like, all of his mannerisms are still oh, there. Yeah. You know, it just, it, to me, it doesn't feel like it's he's alive. acting. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. It, he he becomes that character. And... um there's only a few other people that are really in that league i think that really just sort of embody those characters and you know there's a lot of other great actors like a i don't know like a matt damon or even a jack black and when when you talk about um uh what's the guy's name that plays
1: voldemort ray (laughs) fines
2: yeah so when you talk about ray fines and you mentioned uh how Voldemort comes out in this performance. (laughs) I I don't get any of that with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like I never watch, like you don't watch *Along long came Polly* and think like, (laughs) Oh, there's, there's the little piece of lounge or there's a little piece of his character from Boogie nights. He he is a totally different character and everything, but at the same time, he's still distinctly, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And so it's not unlike a great, uh, you know, musician or guitar player, right. Who you might, It's like these solos are totally different or they collaborated with a different artist, but it's still like, as soon as you hear that, you know, their performance, you know, exactly who's playing the guitar. And it's the same with Philip Seymour often to me. It's, you just, I don't know. There's an X factor that you can't just fully articulate. I don't
1: think. Yep. Yeah. We've talked about that on this podcast. It's, it's this paradox or contradiction where there's something essentially him and something essentially different from everything else he's done happening at the same time. I don't know how it's possible, but it's there.
2: Yeah, and it, it's funny, and, and you might cut this from the podcast. But like another actor who I think honestly does a d- does a great job with this is Tim Heidecker, and I, <laughs> I, I think he's underrated as an actor. But if, if you if, if you delve into the the into the whole Tim Tim and Eric universe. <laughs> So, so,
1: are you being serious right now? Or are you trolling me at the end of this podcast?
2: No, I, I don't think he's on the level of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Well, no, of
1: course not. But I mean, in in terms of that, like, there's something essentially Tim Heidecker, and there's something essentially different in everything he does. I think,
2: I think they they create on Tim and Eric, they create these bizarre. Nightmare comedic (laughs) scenarios that are like disturbing to a lot of people. But if you watch Tim Heidecker acting in those scenarios, he's very authentic, like, he's very (laughs) believable. And like, it's a show that's sort of like their stuff, they have people intentionally acting poorly in some of it. So it's kind of complicated, but like, his acting, like, he always is so believable. And so, like, I don't know. When you ask me to, if you ask me to say, like, who are other people that come across really authentic, like, even in Bridesmaids, where he doesn't have any lines. Oh my <laughs> like, god,
1: he's so funny in that he's movie. He's so funny, and he doesn't. Say I don't a even word, know how.
2: <laughs> I know, but he's hysterical, and I just yeah. like to me. And so, I'm not insinuating that that he goes down as one of the great actors of all time, but <laughs> I think there's something with Philip Seymour Hoffman, like even if he was on the screen for 10 minutes and didn't say anything like people, people who who actually appreciated film on some level would would be like, who was that guy? Like, yeah, he brings, he brings an energy and a presence. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Tim Heidecker, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the greatest actors of our generation. (laughs) If you could put the universe into a tube, you'd end up with a, a, a very long tube Um, probably extending uh, twice the size of the universe because when you collapse the universe it expands and it would be uh, you wouldn't want to put it into a tube picture a hot dog bun and and throw all the stars the hundreds of stars that there are in the universe into a into a bag and put the universe into a bag and you all of a sudden they become When I was a child, there was thought to be nine planets, but there are now 90 planets. Thank you for listening to That's That. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It will help the podcast get out there to more Philip Seymour Hoffman lovers, uh, which is what I want to do. You know, This has been an amazing and enjoyable journey for me personally, but we've also brought some other people along who are want to go through all of the Hoffman films. And so if you know other people who want to do that, share the podcast, let them know. I think it'll be enjoyable for all of us. We will see you next time with an in-depth look into the 1999 crime drama thriller, The Talented Mr. Ripley, starring Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, Jude Law, and of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The IMDb logline for the film is as follows. In late 1950s New York, Tom Ripley, a young underachiever, is sent to Italy to retrieve Dickie Greenleaf, a rich and spoiled millionaire playboy. But when the errand fails, Ripley takes extreme measures. The film can be seen on HBO Max, and my guest will be friend, collaborator, and filmmaker Kelly Ray Jordan. That's That is sponsored by One County Film, an independent film company telling stories with authentic characters and unique settings. I say this all the time, but you can rent our debut feature film, Palace, on Amazon Prime right now for a few bucks. You can check us out on YouTube where we talk about uh, Criterion films on the Criterion channel. You can check out our blog where we talk about movies and filmmaking, blah, 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 blah. Lots of cool stuff going on. Uh, with one county film, we just finished up our second feature film. We've submitted it to festivals, so we'll certainly be keeping everyone updated on that. That's that. Is produced by me, Timothy Mark Davis, and edited by Ryan Arnst. Our show music was composed and edited by Jessica Ray Huber, and our graphic was designed by Drew Hannigan. You can connect with One County Film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at One County Film. Please give us a follow and a like if you haven't already. And you can connect with me on Twitter at Timothy Mark Dav, Timothy Mark D A V, and on Instagram at Timothy Mark Davis. All this will be in the show notes as well. Joe, where can you be found online if you would like to be found? And what can people expect from you online?
2: <laughs> uh, uh, nothing. <laughs> I don't need to be found. <laughs> you can uh, you can
1: find joe on linkedin joe rule joseph rule i can't even remember what your name is on linkedin but you're always very supportive of what i post
2: that's right joseph ruleman if you'd like to add me on linkedin um (laughs) at joe rules j-o-e-r-u-e-h-l-s on instagram um not a lot of meaningful comment or content there it's mostly (laughs) pictures of just my personal life and my parents dog but you know if you're into that kind of stuff give me a follow
1: if you want to see the physical similarities between Joseph Ruhlman and Brad Pitt, you can follow him on Instagram at Joe Rules. If
2: Brad Pitt was like deathly pale, and he was like, I would say about if they selected him instead of Christian Bale for The Pianist, and he was like about halfway ready for that movie, then you've got what you know, kind of what I look like. So,
1: The Pianist wasn't that Adrian Brody? Oh no, The
2: Machinist. The Machinist. <laughs>
1: Don't put that on the show. (laughs) I'm keeping all of this. Oh, now all I can think about is a mashup of the pianist and the machinist. Wow, what a movie that would be. Incredible. Okay, Joe, before we leave, I need the guest to quote Adam Sandler from Punch Drunk Love in a line he says to Dean Trumbull, played by Phil. And the line is, I'd say that's that, Mattress Man.
2: You know I can't do that, Tim.
1: Oh, don't you, <laughs> don't you? This is the I, I knew as soon as you paused that you were gonna do this. I'll do it. You're I'll not allowed it. to provide commentary on our personal lives. Can I say live on the podcast. I know. Can
2: I can I say how fitting it is for someone who got who uh, came from the mattress industry to, to use
1: We should say that. Joe, can you take us if if I were to walk by a mattress firm, could you take me around that I mattress could. firm? I'll,
2: I'll tell you what. <laughs> this i i have uh, excited to use this line because that film is one of the few movies that actually portrays the mattress industry which i was once a yes. mattress i was once a peddler of mattresses myself so <laughs> it's a great way to cut your teeth so i'd say that's that mattress man
1: <laughs> oh that's that everybody